if you've ever confronted somebody in their sin, and by that I don't mean that you were merely sin-sniffing or being overly critical or trying to bash somebody and push them down in order to lift yourself up and make yourself feel better about yourself. But I do mean if you've ever approached somebody in love and with humility, as the Bible commands us to, and you've gone to them to begin to illuminate perhaps some sin inside of their life that they were unaware of or that they were blinded to, and you begin to encourage them to repent and to turn and to trust God in that area of life, if you've ever done that, then you have probably been confronted with some pretty harsh words after you've done it. Things like, who are you to judge me? Judge not, lest you be judged. Hey, there's only one person that should be judging me, and that's God, not you. Now, by all of those responses, and I've heard all of those responses, and perhaps you have as well, that perhaps we understand that people, unfortunately, seem to be more fearful about being judged by, by their peers than they are of a holy God. And Jesus tells us that that would be a huge mistake. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So that would be a mistake to think that somehow it would be better to be, uh, to be judged by God than man. Yet this was the very mistake that God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel continued to make. God had sent by his mercy and his grace the prophet Amos to go and to declare and to, and to shake the people up and letting them know that how they were living was sinful against God, and yet they rejected it completely and totally and continually. They didn't want to hear him. And on one particular occasion, when Amos told them, it says, well, listen, you don't have to worry about my judgment. You have to worry about God's judgment. God will come and judge you with a plumb line, and he will be the ones to determine whether you're right or not. And the people begin to rejoice. The people begin to say, great, bring on God's judgment. Well, guess what? They're now going to get what it is that they so desperately wanted. And so in chapter 9, what we see is we see a description of God's judgment. Now, this is different than chapter 8 that we saw last week. Chapter 8, we saw a description of God's judgment, but it was very detailed. That is, it talked about when the judgment of Israel came that there would be an earthquake and there would be darkness and there would be mourning and there would be famine. But that was a specific description of God's judgment and a particular culture at a particular time. That's not always what God's judgment looks like. But in chapter 9, we see God's judgment in a more general sense. That is, this is how God judges all people in all times and in all places. And so what we want to do is we want to look at three marks of God's judgment. We're to see three aspects, three marks of God's judgment. First of all, we see that God's judgment is perfect. God's judgment is perfect. Look, if you will, at verse 1. Notice he says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, this is the fifth vision that God had given Amos uh, concerning the judgment of Israel. And this vision is different than the, than the previous four. And the previous four judgments, God would, would show this vision to Amos, and he would see it, and immediately God would ask him, he says, what is it that you see? And then they would, begin, they would have this kind of dialogue back and forth with each other, and sometimes he would begin to intercede before, on behalf of the people, begging God not to judge the people. But here in this fifth vision, there's, there's, there's no question. 
God doesn't say, hey, what is it that you see? There's no conversation going between God and him. There's no more discussion. Why? Because judgment has finally come to the house of Israel. I think it's interesting. Sometimes when we are sharing the gospel with somebody, we use this little tool. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but sometimes we'll ask somebody if we're not sure where they stand with God, say, hey, listen, if you were to stand before God today in judgment of God at his judgment throne, what would you say to him, uh, convincing him that, that you would have eternal life if you were ultimately to die? Why would he take you in? Now, I understand why we say that. I've used it, and I probably would still use it uh, again, because what you're trying to do is trying to get the individual to think about where they are in terms of eternity in the relationship with God. The only problem with it is it's completely biblically and theologically incorrect. <laughs> And what I mean by that is at the day of judgment, the white throne judgment, for those who are not in Christ but are still in their sins, when they stand before God, they will remain silent. There will be no discussion. There will be no rebuttals. There will be no excuses. There will be no questions, clarifications, or even final pleadings. Those who are in their sin will be judged, will remain silent. The only person who has the mic, per se, will be God. And this is where God's people are. They are at that final place of judgment. Now, to understand this vision and God being at the side of the altar, we have to go back about 180 years to find out what led to all of this. How did the people get themselves into this place of God's judgment? And to go back 180 years before Amos, we, we would find ourselves immediately after the death of Solomon and right after the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And because they split into two, they needed another king. There was Rehoboam in the south, and there was King Jeroboam I in the north. And, and so King Jeroboam, what we read about him in 1 Kings chapter 12, is he wasn't the most confident guy. He was constantly nervous that somebody was going to take his lead or take his throne. He was going to lose his power to King Rehoboam in the south. And so he begins to think, how can I secure my own power and position as king? And then he realizes what the problem was. The problem was is that the place to worship was not in the northern kingdom, but was in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. So he understood with all of his people constantly going down to the southern kingdom that they may end up start taking affinity and have affection on the southern king. So they needed to be able to keep people at home. So he comes up with this brilliant idea. I'm being facetious. He decides that he's going to go ahead and he's going to create two golden calves. And he's going to set up not one, but two different temples, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And the people will come and worship. And he begins to make up his own religious festivals. And he puts himself at the center of these festivals. He goes into these temples and he stands right to the side. You can read this in 1 Kings chapter 12. And he stands right beside the altar. And he's the one who begins to make sacrifices on the part of the people. Now, all of this looks very religious, and if people were to look at this king, they'd be like, look at him. He's leading people in the worship of God. But all of this was just a cover. None of this was about the true worship of God. None of this was about honoring God for who he is. This was all for his own selfish gain. It was all a cover to be able to disguise his own selfishness and his own selfish desire just for his own power and security of his own throne. Jeroboam looked the part of a good king leading his people in the worship of God, but he was using these religious practices to cover up his own selfish desires and motivations. 
He threw a cloak of religion over a life motivated, motivated towards self. In Paul, as Paul speaks of this very thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He says, "...as having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power." In other words, all kinds of religious activity on the outside, no radical change within the inside. And so we look at this, and this particular sin became known throughout the people as the sin of Jeroboam, or what we ultimately call the sin of pretense. In other words, the sin of pretending. And this was the very sin that the people of Israel were guilty for over a period of 180 years. If you would show up, you would think these people got it all together. Their attendance is amazing. Their giving is amazing. They, they do everything that they're ultimately called to do of God. But when you look a little bit closer, you realize it's all for their own selfish gain. None of it was ultimately for the glory of God. And so what happens here and what we believe is happening with the time of Amos is that a second king, Jeroboam, all these years later comes to the throne. He has the same exact name. And he, too, is carrying on this same false worship. And he, too, is going into these false temples. And he's making these, these, these false sacrifices. And as he's doing this, he has this vision. Jer, 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 or excuse me, Amos has this vision. And Jeroboam is now replaced by God himself. And God replaces him. And so we see Jeroboam, he looked apart. Uh, the, the Lord now stands at the altar. This fake king who is offering up fake sacrifices is now replaced by the true king who comes to judge those who are pretending to be God's true worshipers. God judges those. Why? Because he can tell the difference. He can tell the difference between who's faking it. You may have heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. That doesn't apply when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are faking it, you're not going to make it, period. And so we see in the Word of God this sin of pretense. It's interesting is because it's really one of the earliest sins committed by humankind. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden? When Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God by taking of the fruit and eating of the fruit that God had strictly commanded them not to eat of, then what did they do immediately after that? Sensing their sin and being exposed to their own sin, they have a sinful inclination to try to cover up. So they go in and they begin to take these fig leaves and they begin to sew them together and they begin to cover themselves because they don't want God to see them for who they are. They want to see the goodness on the outside and not the corruption on the inside. And God says, completely unacceptable. And so what he does is he removes that covering for them and he provides a true covering of animal skins to cover up their sins who had to be shed. The blood would be covered. You can't cover up by your own good works. That's the point. It's, it's unacceptable by God. Now fast forward by Mark, to Mark chapter 11. Jesus confirms the same teaching. Jesus is going from Bethany to Jerusalem and as he's traveling along this way, on, on the side of the road he sees this fig tree. And it's full of bloom. It's got all its leaves on it, which is significant historically because those fig leaves, would, those fig leaves indicated that there would be fruit on the tree. The fig tree would actually produce its fruit, and then it would grow its leaves. So if you saw one with all its leaves, you would know that it was declaring it was time to be able to pick the fruit. So Jesus sees this tree. It's got all of these leaves. He goes up to it, but there's no fruit what does Jesus do to the fruit? Well, maybe I'll, look, it's a nice looking tree. Uh, maybe next year it will produce fruit. No, he curses the tree. He curses the tree, indicating what? Jesus Christ does not accept 
a nice external package that looks all nice and looks all wonderful and looks all religious and looks all great. He goes beyond all of that. His judgment is perfect. He's not tricked. He goes right to the heart of the matter. Now, you and I, we as a family of God are familiar with this sin of pretense, aren't we? We're all guilty of it to one extent or another. Every single one of us in here knows what it's like to try to appear to be something that we're actually not. We love to be able to put on, put our best foot forward, to put on our best clothes, to put on our best smile on our face. When even when everything is looking good on the inside, oftentimes everything that's on the inside is a mess. And we love to be able to boast and say, look at us. Clearly, we have no money problems. Our jobs are stable. Our marriage is strong. Our our kids are respectful. Unfortunately, the outward appearance we try to display is far from what is actually happening below the surface. And what is ultra sad about this whole thing is where this sin takes place most often is probably right here at Mercy Hill. That many people, where their lives are distorted with sin and they're living in the midst of sin, they're coming to the house of God and they're trying to put on this display, hey, everything's good with me in God, and they're trying to cover up through their religious activity. And what makes this so sad is this is the one place none of that should happen. Because when we come, we're coming agreeing that we are nothing but sinners saved by grace, and we're not coming to impress God with our leaves. We're coming for God to produce fruit which is consistent with repentance in us, and the only way to do that is to come humbly before God and say, I'm broken, I'm in need of your grace, and I'm in need of your mercy. And the Bible comes and it says, and it says to us ultimately here, he says that this one thing for us to do that on occasion, and it is, how many would admit that, 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 that is, it's hard not to want people to think that we're better than our, than our own. So that's going to be a sin I think every believer really ultimately struggles with. But the struggle with here with the people, and when it really becomes dangerous, is when we actually adopt pretense, a life of pretending as a genuine pattern of living out our faith. And that's what the people were doing. The people were going about all of this business and none of it ever touched their heart. None of it ever transformed their lives. It was just one thing after another after another, thinking that maybe if they do enough of these things, it would cover up all of their sins. And God says, my judgment is perfect. I see past all that and I see the root of the heart. His judgment is perfect. We can fool each other, but we cannot fool God. Second thing that we want to see this morning is that God's judgment is certain. It's not only perfect, but it's also certain. It would have been difficult for God's people during the time of Amos to actually believe that this judgment was ever truly going to happen. And the reason for that was really for two purposes. One is because of how much time had passed. All they had done is heard Amos for a long period of time coming and telling them, hey, listen, the judgment of God is coming. The judgment of God is coming. You need to prepare. And, you know, at first, I bet you it really startled them, almost like a lion's roar. When a person first comes up and says, you guys have been living in sin, God is about to judge you, at first, they probably lost some sleep. It was probably the conversations at bedtime with the kids when they couldn't sleep. It was probably their conversations that they had at work around the water cooler, around uh, drinking coffee with each other. What do you think? Do you think God's judgment's really going to come? The whole community would have been embraced with this. But what happens over a period of time? Over a period of time when somebody keeps threatening that the judgment of God is coming, but the more time that goes by, what happens? Well, 
I'm, we're not really even convinced that this thing is ever going to happen because look how much time has gone by. They also begin to become lulled to sleep and comfortable. Why? Because, because, of their, uh, because of their own security. It was also hard to believe that God would ever judge. Why? Because things were going so swimmingly. Business was great. They had more money than they knew what to do with. In fact, they had so much money, they weren't just trying to pay the bills. They had so much more money, they were trying to figure out, what are we going to do with this? And so they begin to inlay their beds that they laid on with gold and ivory. They weren't trying to make the, the, the payment on their house. They were buying a second, third, and fourth vacation house. These are not people that are struggling. And so when they're not needing of anything, there's this false sense of security with them. And when you begin to feel that secure, included not only financially, but also with a strong military, strong as it's been in 200 years, the difficulty for that is it's hard to imagine any impending danger. Hey, we're good. We're okay. When I used to go to, when I, when I shared the gospel one time, I went on a mission trip to, to New Hampshire and if you want to feel really awful about yourself, then go and take a mission trip to New Hampshire. Um, because you knock on doors, we found out that what we're going to do is go door to door in New Hampshire. I don't think you know what that means. If you're from the South, you have no idea what that means. And what happens is you would go to rich door after rich door after rich door, and you would knock, and you would come and say, hey, I'm here. I would love to be able to talk with you about some religious things and tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. Every person, we're all set. We're all set. We're good. There's nothing else that we need. Why? Because they had become comfortable. Any news, any message that God would come and ultimately judge, they could not even compute because everything in their lives were going so well. They had been lulled asleep. They had become literally intoxicated by the goodness and the mercies of God. So God comes and he basically tells them he has to roar. He has to wake them up. He says, no matter how secure you think you are or where you're placing your security, which you think is insulating you from the coming impending judgment of God, I want to assure you my judgment is certain and you will not escape it. Now, notice what he says. He says, you will, he goes, your religion will not save you. Look at the, the beginning in verse one once again after the second line. He says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them out of the heads of all of, uh, out of the heads of all the people and those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. The people are hearing that this judgment is coming and you know what they're saying? Well, when the judgment comes, I'm just gonna rely on these other things. I'm just gonna become really, really, really religious when he comes and that's gonna save me. And he says, You can hide all you want in your religion and in your temples. And what he's referring to right here, the capitals is not a capital of a country. He's talking about the capitals, which were the massive pillars inside of all of these lavish temples that they had made. He says, you go in there and you cling to that, but I'm gonna cause an earthquake, which is gonna cause it to crumble and it's gonna crush on your head. And if you think you're super fast, like some of you guys are at the very end of the service to slip out, he goes, by the way, I'm just, I'm just joking. <laughs> he goes, he goes, I know sometimes we have to go. It's medical and all that other kind of, I get that. See, see, now I won't say that in the second service, but he says, for you, you will, you too will not escape because there will be somebody at the door with a sword awaiting for you. You will not escape. You cling into your religion. Your religion is not going to save you. Hey, you think you're going to run? You think you're going to run? This is always what's interesting to me, right? Whenever things begin to go bad with the economy before the election, everyone's like, everything's going to fall apart. We got to get off the grid. We got to run, you know? And I'm almost kind of like, yeah, honey, we're going to have to run. And I'm like, where are we going to run? 
you know, we're, I got nowhere to run, you know? In fact, I don't even like running, you know? So where are we going to do this? These people are beginning to think we're going to run. Notice what he says. He says, you're not going to, running won't save you. Listen to what he says here in the word of God, beginning in verse two. He says, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand uh, take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and I will take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command a serpent to be able to come and get them. Here's what he says. He says, some of you are planning to be able to dig an underground bunker when I come for the judgment. You think you're going to escape. I know where you are. I will find you. Some are like, well, listen, man, I'm going to head to the mountains. They'll never find me at the very peak of the mountains. You could barely breathe up there. And God says, I will be there. I will find you. People are like, well, I'm going to get lost in the deepest, thickest wilderness. I'm going to go into the deepest, darkest cave. You'll never find me. He says, I, sir, I will search and I will find you. They said, well, I'll go to the bottom of the sea. And God says, the bottom of the sea, I will create a serpent. And the serpent will come and ultimately bite you. You cannot escape by running. Then he says, others, well, not only will you not be saved by your religion, not only will you not be saved by running away, he says, but others will not be able to save you either. In verse four, he says, if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. So apparently what they were thinking is, hey, listen, we know the judgment of God is coming. That might be really, really bad, but it looks like we're going to go into captivity. If we go into captivity, it may not be a good life, but at least we'll be protective of God. And God sits there and says, you can look to whoever you want to save you. They can't save you from me. Here's the reason why. Verse 5 and 6 tells us. He says, the Lord, of God, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the, and, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and he founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and he pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He says the reason you can run and you won't hide is because you cannot escape an all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent God. Where do you go where God is not? And so he says that is why it's absolutely firm. It's why you'll never be able to escape. That's why back in verse 1 again, he says, not one of them will flee away. Not one of them shall escape. God's judgment on sinners is certain. Why is this such a difficult thing to be able to struggle with? Why is it so difficult for people to be able to hear Because if you've been a believer for 30 years or 40 years, you've been hearing the same message over and over again. God is going to come and he is going to judge the sins of the world. And you have sound like a broken record for 30 or 40 years. And yet the more that we say it and the more that you share it, there are people just like in the time of Amos who sit back and go, where is this judgment of God? It sounded scary the first three or four times that I heard it, but I'm not scared of this anymore. On top of that, why am I in fear of anything going to happen? Everything is going so well. Look at me, I'm prosperous. In fact, what we've done is we've become inebriated once again with, with the goodness of God. Inebriation, I mean, in the sense that we now misjudge reality. We think our, our, our position is one thing, but really reality means it's something else. People think that they're okay with God. Look how good their life is. God must be happy with him. And what they do is they put their faith in these external things and these temporal blessings of God to assure them that everything is right with God. This is very similar to the man in Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells the parable. He says this. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, 
I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you see the intoxication of his goods? The intoxication of good times. Everything is okay. Nothing to fear about. I'll be sitting here. I'm somehow exempt from the judgment of God. And he comes and he says, God comes to him and says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Not only will they not protect you, but you can't even keep them. They'll be given to somebody else. You know, there are very, very few things in this world that are certain. Would you agree? Except for the fact that children will disobey I will grow old. I do weird old man things. Do you do, you do weird old man things, men? Do you do? I'm, I'm doing them already. Those, I, I, I was told that that will happen. I was embarrassed by my dad when he did them. Now I do them, and now my son is embarrassed, and my children are embarrassed. You say, what do you mean? Some of you are looking. If you're young, you're like, what do you mean old man things? I mean things like when I yawn, I don't, I go, Without even knowing it. When I get up out of a chair, I, uh, I don't even realize that I'm doing it. It's annoying old man things. Those things I've told that are certain. But there's very few things that are actually certain in the world in which we live. Two of those is death and the judgment of God. The Bible says it is for man once to die and then the judgment. We will all be judged by God. But let me explain how this works. There's two ways to be judged by God. One is to be judged in the past. One is to be judged in the future. For those who were in Christ, for those who repented of their sins, these people did not place their faith in God. They did not repent. All of their judgment was in the future. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, all of their judgment is in the past. For you and I, it's 2,000 years ago to where all of the consequences of our sin was borne out on the shoulders and on the person of Jesus Christ on the cross as a substitute for all those who would repent and believe. So therefore, when we think about the future, we smile and we rejoice. Why? Because we know there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for those who are not in Christ Jesus, no matter how how impossible the judgment of God might seem, how far away it may seem, and now how comfortable and how, uh, how, how inebriated they may be, good, be in the goodness and the mercies of God, they fail to understand that that judgment is indeed going to come. The judgment of God is certain. It's the third thing we're going to say. By the way, Merry Christmas. <laughs> third thing that we say here is God's judgment. I just needed to say something in the midst of that. As God's judgment is impartial. God's judgment is impartial. Now look at verse 7 and 8 with, with me, just very quickly, if you will. If you listen quickly, I'll speak quicker so we can be done. And we can go to the Jaguar game six hours ahead of time. Verse 7 and 8, the Bible says, it says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kephtor and the Syrians from Kerr? And what God's doing here is he's trying to co- correct a false notion 
that the people of God in the northern kingdom have adopted and they've come to believe. They've believed because of God's goodness and because God, the way that God has worked in their, 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 their forefathers and, and throughout their history, that God somehow loves them more than he loves anybody else. That because he loves them in such a way that they are somehow exempt from the type of judgment that everybody else is going to ultimately experience. And so what God is trying to do is he's trying to let them know, you're wrong. Yes, they had received all types of blessings that that the, the other nations didn't receive. They received the presence of God, unlike all the other nations. They had received the word of God through the prophets. They had, they, they had received covenants with God that the other nations did not, did not receive. But remember what God said. He didn't give these blessings to them to end to them, but to go with them to every nation. He says, I have blessed you so that you might become, so that all the nations through you will be what? Will be blessed. He says, my love is for everyone. And he says, and and what is demonstrated in that is I've worked not only sovereignly in the nation of Israel, but I've worked sovereignly in all nations of all times. What the people were trying to say is they were trying to say, hey, look, you know, you, 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 you look how you worked. Look, Look how you worked in the lives of our people. And they begin to talk about the Exodus and how God was so kind to them to take them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And they would go to that and say, look what you did to our forefathers. Look at their faith in you. Look what you did. Look how you delivered them, which is a good thing per se. But they misunderstood it. So what God does here is he reminds them that he not only loves all the nations the same, but he has worked in the same salvific way within there, in the same saving way to see them to come to faith in God. And then his example here is to let them know he did the same thing for the Philistines and the Syrians. That is, if you look back at their history, they could have seen that God had delivered them from oppression of other people as well and delivered them and brought them into their own country. So he'd not only done it to Israel, he had done it for these other countries as well. What is his point? Well, here's the problem. The problem of the people uh, of God was that their faith was consistent with what God had done or consisted of what God had done for their ancestors in the past rather than what he had done with them or was doing with them in the present. They fail to see that the Lord does not look on people in light of their historical past, but in light of their present moral condition. Let me, let me say it this way. Again, engaging people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I will often ask people, I'll say, well, tell me a little bit about your background. Tell me about your church background. Did you go to church? How did you grow up? What happened? And the reason you're doing this again is you're trying to find out where they are. Are they, are they true believers? Are they not believers? Tell me a little bit about it. And I can't tell you how many times that the response of somebody to that question has been about their grandmother time and time again about their grandmother. Well, I had a godly grandmother. My, my, my grandmammy, I mean, she was, she was a prayer, man. Every time I saw her, she was, she was on her knees. And, and at their funeral, they'll, they'll bring grandmammy's Bible. And they'll go, look at grandmammy. Look at what all that she would say. Look at all that she underlined. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to have godly grandparents that raise their children in the admonition of Christ and, and fear God. And then they'll talk about grandpappy that he was a deacon in the church and he was very well respected and, and, and he was well dressed when he came to church and people in the community uh, respected him as well. And not only that, but they were really great givers. In fact, you could go to their church and right there is gonna be this little metal plaque in the center of this, this giant stained glass window that has their name in it honoring them for their sacrificial giving. 
I have no idea whose idea that was to stick people's names on everything, but that was a, that was a tragedy, all right? And, but, but the idea there is, is that they're looking at this, and then they stop their conversation, and they have a huge smile on their face. And I'm sitting there going, this is wonderful. I'm so glad that your mom and your dad and your, and your pappy and your grandmommy feared God. And what a blessing it was to you to be able to grow up with that type of blessing and that type of advantage. But I'm not here to talk about your grandmommy and your grandpappy. I want to know, how has God changed you? How has God changed you? Now, this is good news either way, right? This is, this is good news. It's bad news for those who are placing their faith in what God did for their relatives and their history and while God is moving in their history. It is, it, is, it is good news for us whose whole families were pagans, right? You're like, where's your Christian history? I've got none. You're looking at it. This is it. I, I don't come from a long line of Christians. God chose by his own sovereign will to break into history and save me and the reason I know that is not because of my history, but it's because of my present, that God is now changing me in the image and likeness of Christ. And he comes and he says, I don't care about your history. I care about your now. Are you born again now? Are you living? Do you have, are you filled with the fruits of the spirit of God? That's what he's asking for. He says to him, finally, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he says, He warns you from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to yourselves that we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. From, he says, even now the axe is being laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let me ask you, church. Is your testimony filled with historical facts or is it filled with the evidence of God's present transforming grace? Is your testimony, 20 years ago, I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card, was baptized. That's not the kind of testimony that you want. I am not belittling those things and the fact that those were the acts and the things that you did in light of the salvation that took place in your heart and in your life. But what I am suggesting is those things do not mean, those historical events do not mean that you're born again. The only way we know whether we're born again or not is today, do we look more like Christ than we did when we first were born again? Are we actively being changed? Are we actively being transformed? And that's what God wants to see. And God's judgment is impartial. You don't have to worry about who came before you, but you can't put your faith in who came before you. Just because these things happen doesn't mean that you're any different than who you are. God is going to come to each one of us individually and know, are we righteous? And the truth is, we cannot be righteous apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can't be good. We can't cling to those things is what those people try to do. They try to cover up with leaves. And he says, no. He says, you must produce fruit which is consistent with repentance which is a love for God, which is a change of direction, which is a desire to be able to do his will, which is a pursuit after godliness, which is a genuine love for God, not because you want him to do something for you, but because he's already done something for you. That's the fruit 
It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those the types of things that are in your life that evidence that you are a child of God? If not, repent and believe and he will change you. He will recreate you from the inside out. But listen, it would be so sad if we got near the end of this book, talked all about judgment, but yet we still were in the same place we were in the beginning and we were still deserving of his judgment and hadn't called out for the mercy and the grace of God. Will you do that this morning? Dear Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. Heavy stuff, Lord, but it's God's stuff. And he wants us each here before this morning, before we break free, before we go to lunch, before we do whatever is on our agenda, that, God, we would just take this time and see, A, are we in the faith? Are we where we specifically need to be? If these are the principles of the judgment of God, how do we rate on these principles of God? God, I just pray that for some, it would be just a day of rejoicing of your goodness and your mercy and your grace. That we do know that we have eternal life because of what you've done in our life, the evidence of what you've done in our life. But God, allow there to be, I pray, in the hearts of some who have maybe placed their faith in all these different things, maybe have been lulled to sleep in their walk with you, would come alive at the sound of the roar of the lion. And we would understand that you require and you desire of us to do what is right in your eyes. But God, it's not from our own self-work, but it's because of the gracious work of God within us. Help us respond in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? I'm gonna be down here. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to lead you through whatever question you might have. If I don't know the answer, I'll find someone who does. But let's respond in light of the truth that we've heard, all right? Do you know Christ? If not, please. I'd love to talk with you. Please come. Please come. All right, amen. God is good, amen? Amen. amen. Well, listen, uh, 